either one of these any good? Wow, this is a good movie. It's pretty good. Well, the director from yesterday doesn't think so. It stinks. You sorry. You waste all our film. <laughs> it's so bad. Top heavy this week with some scary and bloody stuff. Welcome. <laughs> this is the Screening Room Podcast, and she is Hope Madden. He's George Wolf, And we are from MadWolf.com, starting off in theaters with one we've been looking forward to, Renfield, Dracula's henchman, an inmate at the Lunatic Asylum for decades, longs for a life away from the Count, his various demands, and all of the bloodshed that comes with them. This is Renfield. I don't think he's such a bad guy, but you're never really going to be free until you face him. I will no longer tolerate abuse. <laughs> I deserve happiness. Let me explain something to you, okay? You deserve only suffering. I will unleash an army of death. Everyone you care about will suffer because you betrayed me. We have to stop him before sunset. You know when something crazy happens and someone's like, it's okay, I've seen way worse. Everything I saw you do today is gonna be my way worse. It's my least favorite part of the job. Well, for many people, us included, all you got to know is Nicolas Cage is playing Dracula. Yeah. And that alone is worth the price of admission. But it's a fun movie, Mm -hmm. and I think it surprised both of us how bloody it is. I mean, blood splattered. Yes. And it's, you know, the movie really does a great job, especially in the beginning, of setting the stage by recreating or maybe even deep faking some classic images from the Bella Lugosi Dracula. He looks, they've got him looking so much like Bella Lugosi early on. It, I was really taken aback by and it. And actually, and it's funny because a couple of the shots, Renfield is a less iconic character, obviously, although the Renfield from Dracula, he was magnificent and he made these weird faces. And so they do a lot of that with, with Nicholas Holt, who plays Renfield. And then, you know, they... They bring you along a timeline, and then they set you in present day. And the the thing is that, you know, Renfield kind of signed up for this at one point, but now, you know, 150 years later, there's a pattern of toxic right. um, employability where his his boss goes crazy hedonistic. He, he drinks all the blood he can. Some people come and find him, and they have to flee the country. And then, you know, Renfield is, is tasked with nursing him back to life by bringing him victims, you know, in their secret lair, and he just doesn't want it anymore. Right. And he's decided here in New Orleans that he's not, he's going to bring in bad people. And so in doing that, what he does, he goes to this self-help group and he just starts killing or letting Dracula kill the people who are bothering those in this toxic um, relationship self-help group. Uh, The the group is for people trying to get out of a toxic relationship. So when the people complain about the person that is oppressing them, that's who he thinks, okay, those are bad people. Let's serve them up. But he stumbled into this and then eventually realizes, wait a minute, I'm I'm, in a toxic relationship. (laughs) And it is fun. They they have a lot of fun with that idea. And they have a lot of fun with New Orleans as well. I think it's a a great setting for this. And, of course, Aquafina plays a police, uh, like a beat cop in New Orleans. And she's funny no matter what she does, even though, to be honest with you, the script is not that funny. But, you know, she has a great delivery of everything. But mainly, obviously, the reason to see this is Nicolas Cage. Yeah, and then you've got this whole other part of the story involves this 
this crime family in New Orleans that Aquafina's character is trying to bust right. and finding that they have so many other cops on the payroll that it's impossible. And the crime family is led by, and I want to get her name right, Shoray Agdashlu, and she was for, she got nominated. I think she got Oscar nominated back in the day for uh, uh, in the House of Sand and yes, Fog. Yes, House of Sand Fog. Mm-hmm. She's great. She's it's great good to see her. And one thing I thought of right away: her voice. Oh, I'm yeah. telling you, with that upcoming Exorcist <laughs> sequel, if you need a new Mercedes, Mercedes McCain, get this woman. Oh yeah, she she could do it. Anyway, so she's the head of the crime family, and that's a whole other part of the story. But like you said, it updates it, brings it into modern times. Has it's I think it's got its kind of foot in. In a lot of different areas, it's a it's a bit of a spoof, um, satire even about some of these toxic relationships mm-hmm. today. It's it's an homage, of course. We talked about uh, even looking so much like Bella Lugosi. At the same time, it's updating these themes. I think it gets a little disjointed at times. Oh sure, but never enough to not be fun. No, it is very fun. And the man, the blood just starts a flow, and the limbs. Yeah. Get shat- I mean, it's yeah. really bloody. When when they get into the fight sequences, you know, um, especially this one f- fight sequence that happens at an apartment building. Oh, you know man. what it does? It doesn't take you back to any other horror films or even a, a very specific slice of action movies like the most hardcore kung fu bodies exploding limbs akimbo mm-hmm. action movies. That's what it looks like. And Only it's done with humor. Yeah, and it reminded me of a little bit of Zombie Land. Yeah, uh, yep. a little bit of the Shaun of the Dead humor. Mm-hmm. You know, very, and then people sometimes are are levitating like Matrix a little bit. But uh, make no mistake, this thing is bloody. Oh, yeah, is. And Nicolas Cage, of course, is just a hoot yeah. as Dracula. As, as as you mentioned in the written review, his his sauciest. Yeah. He's perfect for this. Uh, Nicholas Holt is very good, too, because he so often plays like a, a put-upon, a sad, sad type of boy. But in this, now, I wasn't expecting... This one gives Renfield the chance to have some superpowers mm-hmm. if he does a certain thing. Mm-hmm. He gets some anti-hero superpowers yeah. where he gets to to uh, kick some kick some ass for a while too. And that was a, a bit of an action angle for Renfield that I wasn't expecting. So there's a lot there's a lot to enjoy here. I think. Oh no, I think so too. And I also, you know, I'm a big fan. Have always been a big fan of Vampire's Kiss, uh, in which oh, yeah. he plays a character yeah. um, who who thinks he's a vampire. Right. And so it was really just fun for me for to to watch Nicolas Cage be a vampire. And there are a couple of others. I want to say that there's a moment. There's a moment where he's dressed like Bela Lugosi. It's a shot from the Bela Lugosi film. But if you if you pay close attention, he's standing exactly in a Nosferatu pose. And then also, I kind of think the mouth might be like a Caligari mouth. Anyway, oh, here's yeah. what I'm saying: yeah. is that I, I really I love the design, yeah. uh, the look of this movie. Yeah, if you're a fan of classic horror all the way through to today, you'll find a lot of lot of homages in there. We should say the director is Chris McKay. Who did the Lego Batman movie, which you don't think necessarily right, preps you for right. this, but kind of. And then the Tomorrow War. Right, so it's an well. actiony, yeah. actiony kind of the thing. Yeah, and the writers are Ryan Ridley and Robert Kirkman. So it's not a laugh riot by any means, but it's, it's fun it's and fun. it's funny enough and bloody. Yeah. Bloody fun. And that is uh, Renfield uh, out now in theaters. Staying in theaters for a horror thriller next that follows the Vatican's leading exorcist as he investigates the possession of a child and uncovers a conspiracy the Vatican has tried to keep secret. It's the Pope's exorcist. Oh, my God. There is a great evil that only you can help. Inspired by the actual files. We have work to do. 
of the Vatican's chief exorcist. Is the Vatican sealed? The church is hiding something. You've been played. Who will defend you? My faith does not require defense. Now, you know, a little bit, you think this is sort of the same idea, right? Which is to say, do we really need another Dracula movie? Oh, is Nicolas Cage going to play the Dracula? Right. It's like that. Do we really need another Exorcist movie? Oh, wait a minute. Is Russell Crowe the Exorcist? Yeah, to be honest, when I first started seeing the trailers for this, I was surprised Russell Crowe is doing yeah. this. Because he certainly brings a gravitas to the to the uh, production and turns out to be about the best thing in the film. Oh, he's easily the best thing in the film. And the truth is, uh, you know, he has spent the last 10 years or so making a lot of genre films. So I don't, uh, not horror necessarily, but like, a, you know, a sort of mid-budget action-y things. And, and so I don't suppose it's as big a surprise as it seems. And he is great. He's great in this movie. He's, you know, he's kind of dialed down. He seems to be enjoying his time on screen. He seems to really have great chemistry with the other actors, even though many of the other actors are, to be honest, not very good. Yeah. And and it stands out a little bit when they're being not very good in these sort of intimate scenes of dialogue with Crow, who also has an Italian accent throughout. I mean, and he drives a, a little Vespa. I mean, he's he's so fun. <laughs> but the movie, you know, outside of that is so cookie cutter. Yeah. I mean, how many, is there no other way to possess somebody? You always have to possess somebody weak, make them look ugly, and put a priest in a room with that possessed person in a bed. Can't they do anything else? It seems to be the standard playbook. And this is director Julius Avery, who, Overlord, I know Overlord has a lot of fans. Oh, we loved Overlord. Yeah, it's yeah. great. So when you saw him attached to this, I'm like, oh, okay, yeah. maybe. Yeah. The problem, more than anything, is um, the script uh, and and the writers, it's a team of three writers, and the one, I mean, they all have, the one has nothing but Catholic movies under his belt. Um, he does, he's done, he did the right with Anthony Hopkins a few years ago, which was another just god awful possession film. You know, he's at a, he did the the Messiah TV show, so it's not always horror, but I mean, yeah, and you know, Catholic based, yeah, that's the thing. I mean, there's they try so they address the sort of the core of the concept of the film is that, you know, this this priest has been summoned to Spain to this little boy, and he, he took the bait. Like, he shouldn't have gone, because the demon wants the Pope's exorcist. He wants to possess the Pope's exorcist. And the reason that it's in Spain, you know, blah, 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 it, it comes down to the two greatest evils of the Catholic Church, which are, of course, the Inquisition, which is why this is set in Spain, and, you know, the decades, perhaps even centuries-long cover-up of systemic sexual abuse. Should we just pause here to let every all the Monty Pythons just go ahead and say it, all the Monty Python <laughs> fans. Nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you're right. So that was, on one hand, that was refreshing yep. to have it be acknowledged, but yet without spoiling anything. The resolution. Yes. Not so good. No. It is not. Did not care for the resolution. So again, if you've ever seen a possession movie, you've essentially seen this movie. If you've seen them and like them exactly as they always are, you probably won't hate this one. Russell Crowe is great. Yeah, it's all probably that. Probably not reason enough to watch it. You know, you can expect, of course, that that 
disjointed yeah. bones cracking unnatural movement type yeah. of thing not that it's not creepy but the more you see it, it, it it's more of the that standard playbook yeah. the movie seems to be drawing from yeah exactly and although so, ralph Ineson is oh, speaking of the speaking voice, of voices yeah yeah he's the voice of of the demon if you don't know ralph Ineson, he's also the father in the movie the witch um, and what he's, a voice. Yeah, he's got just, I mean, he's perfect. He's perfect. He he's, is. This is not a voice that you want to hear coming out of your nine-year-old kid. <laughs> um, so that's fun. But yeah, on the whole, yawn. And the thing is, if you noticed in the advertising where they say, from the files of the, yeah. that means there are more files. So you get the idea that they'd like to keep maybe a conjuring type of exactly, thing going on. Exactly, exactly. That, yeah, that in fact, so, which is a weird thing that this is based on a real-life human being. Um, who started an international organization for exorcists and wrote a lot of books. So I do think you're right that they're trying to create, you know, like the sort of uh, cash cow that is the conjuring universe that is based on on uh, on those people's journals. So yeah. it wouldn't surprise me. But I don't think this movie's going to make any because one the biggest thing, of course, the original conjuring movie. Awesome. Oh, yeah. Remarkable, excellent yeah. film. Uh, this is not so much, no. Yeah, so uh, not a good start if they are hoping for a franchise. Not a good start for the Pope's Exorcist in theaters now. Well, how about a comedy? An American mom inherits her grandfather's mafia empire in Italy, guided by the firm's consigliere. She hilariously defies everyone's expectations as the new head of the family business. It's Mafia Mama. Mafia my dying wish is that you be the new boss of the Balbano family. I've got a lot going on at home. My son just went to college and my husband just cheated on me. You want me to take care of him? Hmm? No. No. No, no, no. We need someone who's level-headed, unassuming, and empathetic. Did you just call me pathetic? We are in the middle of a war with our enemies, the Romanos. We have to kill those Romanos before they kill us. It's just like the Godfather. Oh, right, yeah. I never saw the Godfather. Okay, look, it's really hard to find three and a half hours. You know, Tony Collette and Monica Bellucci, that's enough to make me think, I kind of want to see what this is about, but I can't. neither of them strike me as comic actors, right, really. Right. Well, and, maybe Colette. And Monica Bellucci's she's the conciliary, and she's the, the general of the family, and she doesn't really play it for comedy. She's the smoldering type that uh, she is perfect at playing. Sure. Tony Collette does, and she goes, as, as much as I like her, and as mm-hmm. great as she can be, there's a little bit of mugging going on here, but then the script invites that, because it's not very funny. It's so... It's so contrived and so obvious. In fact, I was really surprised that at, at one point somebody didn't ask her how this all happened. And, oh, they made me an offer I couldn't refuse. Right. They don't say that. So I guess points points for that, I suppose, <laughs> because it's all, man, I, I maybe I snickered one time. It's just so, so obvious. It's director Catherine Hardwick and a team of of three writers, and the script is pretty pretty weak. It, most of the writers have TV backgrounds, and that's what it feels like. Right. A, a, zany, a zany TV script as this woman, played by Toni Collette, um, she's an L.A. suburban mom, Kristen, and just when her son is going off to college, boom, she instantly catches her husband uh, canoodling with a, a younger woman, and then she's in the midst of all that upheaval, and she gets this call to come to Italy from Monica Bellucci that says her 
her long lost sort of estranged uh, grandfather has passed away. She needs to come and uh, settle the affairs. And, of course, her maiden name is Balbano, and that's the name of the crime family in Italy. They don't tell her that until she gets there, and the bullets start flying, and she starts figuring, finding out that she's in over her head. And, and the last wish, the dying wish of her grandfather is to have this granddaughter be the new head of the family. Why? We don't know. But uh, it seems kooky, so let's follow it to the end. Right. And, yeah, it's, it's really not funny at all. Something, no. something just really fit for a, a sitcom. Yeah, I mean, you know, Catherine Hardwick has made. She made Thirteen, which was a great yeah. movie. She's made solid movies, never a comedy. You know, and that's that's yeah. tough to direct a comedy if that's not your area, and it yeah. doesn't seem to be. As I said, it's a little too much mugging, too right. much broad. obvious broad strokes that, that rely on well-known tropes of the of Godfather type and mafia movies, and it really goes nowhere. Yeah. Goes nowhere fast. So uh, an easy offer to refuse. And that is Mafia Mama in theaters right now. Got a documentary next that explores the exploitation of Native American culture in sports, including the use of names and logos that have been adopted by teams and franchises with no apparent connection to the tribes and peoples whose cultures they appropriate. It's called Imagining the Indian. It's like being a little bit pregnant. You're either pregnant or you're not. It's either racist or it's not. Inside the 10, touchdown Redskins. It's just a if it was any other race of people, nobody would stand for it. We are people first, not redskins. We are not scalps. We are not chiefs. We're not squaws. It's up to Native peoples to own their own images, to own their own words, and to be able to own their own feelings. We have a voice now. We're done having people not hear us. And I think we're done playing nice. We're not going to stop. There's teams across school districts that still need to make the change. This is still an issue. Well, this is an, an issue that's been in the news a lot lately the last few years. And for us, it hits home because we're big fans of the Cleveland baseball team mm -hmm. that, of course, for so many years was called the Indians with that Chief Wahoo <laughs> uh, logo. And they finally, two years ago, they well, they started dropping the logo mm -hmm. about three or so years ago. Now they changed to the Guardians. And even the Washington Redskins now, after they had that owner swear they'd never changed the name, they have changed their name. And so there's progress, but this documentary points out that there's still a long way to go. There's still many, many, many team names and, and mascots and cheers out there. And this is a really good, it, it can be a hot button issue because like everything today, it's used in the culture wars. Yes. For a certain segment, it's all, you bring it up and it's just part of this quote unquote wokeness and people don't want to hear about it, don't want to, they just, and, and you'll see a lot of people in this, in this uh, documentary just screaming, it's just a team name, get over it. Okay, so there's, there's that segment that really you probably don't have much much hope of reaching and the the movie seems to know that right it's it, i think what it does one of the things it does really well is to focus on the people on the fence yeah because for a lot of people they may not have given it if maybe not sports fans or maybe casual fans whatever maybe not have given much thought to the reasons behind the the problem with these names and mascots and there are many and this movie does a good job of presenting them from a historical basis, going back hundreds of years to the treatment of Native Americans to today with activists and just so, sort of normal people, regular people who are who describe how 
things like this affect their lives. Mm-hmm. And it's it's very compelling stuff. Now, it's the directors, Aviva Kempner and Ben West. And I will say it's not a very stylish documentary. Right. But, but if you've seen Kempner, she did a, a good documentary a few years ago about the uh, baseball player Mo Berg called The Spy Behind Home Plate, which was then turned into a, a narrative feature with Paul Rudd. Right. But the documentary... Non, not stylish at all, but very good information. So that is the same way here. Don't expect a lot of flash or or visual visual eye candy, but just the the compelling input just keeps coming. It really does, and I think it, it's got a clear agenda. You know, some documentaries sort of stay out of it and leave it up to you. Mm-hmm. No, this has an agenda. There's no doubt about that, and it's got a clear audience that it's trying to reach. But it, it does an awful good job. For people that are that are open-minded and, and want to hear the reasons behind this and why it's so important, uh, to, and why it's so right, really, to uh, to do this and to keep keep uh, changing these these teams and these names and these mascots and, and getting rid of it, because there are so many great quotes from people in the movie. I remember when I was watching it and taking notes. I just kept writing them down. You know, one of them is, "It's either racist or it's not." Right. Right. And they say that early, and that's a very very blanket statement, but then they go on to embellish that and, and, and dig deeper and, and say why. And and another good quote is that it's not honoring anyone. It's demeaning. Right. It doesn't honor anyone. And you have so many people on the other side, and you see them screaming in these sports stadiums or the, the parking lots, that trying to tell these Native Americans how they should feel. Right. Uh, <laughs> and that's just, it's ridiculous. Um, so... I thought it was compelling, and I thought it was definitely uh, very necessary for anyone that wants to really get a well-rounded look at this issue. And I do say well-rounded because it also does a decent job of rebutting, you know, giving the other side a little bit of voice and and rebutting some common common things you see brought up about there's these— they always have some misleading poll that shows Native Americans actually like the names. No. And things about how you're you're just erasing history. Team name, no. The teams stay the same. All the history when the Cleveland changed to the Guardians, it's still the same history yeah. of the team. Yep. Doesn't change anything. Doesn't. Uh, and they, they just change their, their uniforms and names, which teams do all the, all time, the time and have done many times. For some franchises, many, many times throughout the team's history. So very worthwhile if this is of any interest to you at all. And it's in uh, it's getting a wider release now, and I think it's the perfect time for it because there does seem to be momentum yeah. toward this issue, especially, and they, they point out that the, the name Redskins was the most offensive of all. That, and for that one to fall was a kind of a big pillar. And then maybe now we're, you know, we're, we're on the, the way toward getting a new conventional wisdom. And it just always makes me think of, the documentary Blackfish. Right. Because it became just the tipping point. Yep. And big changes came after that. Just ask SeaWorld. Uh, and maybe this can do the same. We'll see. Uh, but check it out. It's in a wider release of theaters now called Imagining the Indian. Got a music documentary next, co-directed by none other than Martin Scorsese. Fellow artist David Johansson's luminous set at Cafe Carlisle from January 2020. It's a concert that is... Wonderfully intimate and a testament to both a lost New York and an artist who remains as fresh and exciting as ever. This is called Personality Crisis, One Night Only. We were a band's band. To have influence like that, I think, is really good. You think I'm a You spend a lot of time putting on a show a hard ago. while you're keeping hidden other aspects of your life. Especially the incomplete picture of yourself. It took us so long to grow up. What's the rush? Yeah, I've been so. My show is out of the ordinary. 
vegetarian, straight, gay, whatever. I just wanted to bring those walls down and have a party. Thank you. I need protection from the cold. I'm such a sentimental old fool. Scorsese, of course, has done a bunch of of concert rock docs. A bunch. Um, it's fun for him to do David Johansson, though, because Scorsese is such a New York filmmaker. And, of course, the New York Dolls is, is Johansson's band. Sure. And he's such a ghost of New York City that they seem to fit together really well. Uh, it's co-directed by David Tedeschi, who um, has edited a, lo- a lot of things, including several of... Scorsese's yeah that Bob Dylan documentary yeah. the Rolling Thunder Review which was great he edited that yeah and so as co-director and editor for this he does a great job of flanking the songs we're at the Carlisle he sings the songs flanking those songs with archival footage with um, you know footage of the dolls with a lot of Morrissey <laughs> Morrissey <laughs> of the Smiths was the leader of England's New York Dolls fan club and I had, did not know uh, that. Neither did I. And I can't tell you how, how much it gets under my skin to 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 agree with Morrissey as often <laughs> as I did during this documentary. But it's um you know, I mean it's great. He's funny, he's charming, David Johansson is. It's it, it was filmed on his seventieth birthday. That's when this uh one night stand is. You look into the crowd, you know, blondie, you know, Deborah Harry sitting out there. Nice. Um and it is kind of a funny thing too, the way it's filmed. There's a lot of uh close ups on his like snapping finger because it's it's a it's a cabaret act. Mm-hmm. He's singing New York Doll songs and some David Johansson band songs, um, but he's singing mainly New York Doll songs as a cabaret act. Mm-hmm. So he's got this jazzy quartet behind him. And I think of uh, so much about this movie I found fascinating and fun, but one of the things that hit me, I don't know why it was so unexpected, is how well his lyrics stand up to, you know, not a lot of punk bands, their lyrics would stand up to a jazz ensemble mm-hmm. interpretation. Yeah. But New York Dolls, they really do. I mean, he really was sort of a street poet. Mm-hmm. And it reminds you how good that band was. Again, I hate to keep agreeing with Morrissey, <laughs> but it was a great band. It is a charming show. He's hilarious. Um, and it's just a lot of fun. If you're if you're a New York Dolls fan, if you're a David Johansson fan, if you're a fan of Rock Docs, it's it. I I I highly recommend. And this if one. you only like Buster Poindexter, then you might get some deeper yeah a deeper dive into, you might. into some of that music. And that is on Showtime. That's on Showtime only right now. Yes, it is. And that is Personality Crisis One Night Only. How about some anime next? A modern action adventure road story where a 17-year-old girl named Suzume helps a mysterious young man close doors from the other side that are releasing disasters all over Japan. It's called Suzume. This is the latest from... Makoto Shinkai, uh, Matt Wiener, reviewed this one for us at MadWolf.com. He's a big fan. He is a big fan. And, you know, he's uh, Shinkai is really, I mean, I don't want to say he's the new Miyazaki, but, I mean, he has absolutely carved out an iconic status among, you know, modern anime. He he does these beautiful, epic tales, um, very fanciful, but at the same time sort of very relevant and realistic and and in and a lot of times they're informed by his own survival of I think it was a 2011 earthquake in Japan. 
where not a, you know he knew a lot of people who did not survive and of course this one is very clear that 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 had uh, reverberations with this film it is gorgeous 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 to look at and it's and it's just also a lot of fun at the same time it's got that heartbreaking quality that you find in his films matt weiner loved it um it's in theaters right now so it's the best way to see it anything this beautiful you should check out in the theater highly recommend suzume yeah. and check out uh, matt weiner's full review madwolf.com for suzume in theaters now Got a comedy next on VOD when his best friend and creative partner suddenly couples off and moves away. An ambitious New York drag queen determined for the limelight must reinvent himself or risk becoming an irrelevant solo act both on stage and off. This is called Chrissy Judy. We've been here for one hour and you're already a mess. I am not. I am so sick and tired of everyone telling me what I need to do, what I should be doing to be happy, to be successful, to find my path. I see the way you look at me, thinking I'll be alone forever, just some sad old faggot still dressing up like a woman, and you hate the thought of that because you know it could just as easily be you, and that fucking terrifies you. I want to kiss a boy this weekend. I know you do, baby girl. As a good thing. Christy Robb reviewed this one for us. This is on VOD right now. It is a gorgeous black and white film. And the one of the reasons that that works is because so much of the dialogue is this sort of snappy 1930s Hollywood silver screen banter. <laughs> uh, there's just glamour dripping from the screen. But at the same time, it's really about it's really about a performer who might just be mediocre and may not know how to not be. But it's also, you know, it's it's almost sort of a coming-of-age film. It's a little bit of a rom-com. It's a little bit of a road picture. It's a lot of different things, but it comes together just beautifully. Yeah, and check out Christy's full review. That's at madwolf.com. And the movie is Chrissy Judy, and she liked it. It's on VOD now. And a documentary next about Anita, who has a gift. She can help bring abundant food from dead soil. She can make men fight for gender equality. And she can end child hunger in her village. Now, to save her home from extreme weather, she faces her greatest challenge, persuading Americans that climate change is real. This is the ants and the grasshopper. And that bit of the trailer that you hear there, it's fascinating. It shows a bunch of ants carrying a grasshopper, and she is pointing out that even though there are a bunch of ants there, only a few are actually carrying the grasshopper, which is, of course, a metaphor for what she's trying to accomplish. It's a really well-made documentary, and Anita Chitaya is a fascinating subject for this documentary uh, that Rachel Willis reviewed for us at MadWolf.com. You know, what she manages to accomplish in her village that gives her the courage yeah. to realize that, you know, climate change is much bigger and she's going to have to go to the United States. And the thing, too, is that, you know, she faces a lot of, well, I'm not sure I really think climate change is the problem, but I'll do what I can, that that makes you feel like you think you might feel just overwhelmed by how impossible this task is. But the movie winds up being really, really hopeful. You do sort of come away thinking she's a she's a once in a generation sort of inspiration. It's a great movie. And again, inspiring and hopeful, especially in today's political climate. We talked about this earlier with the Imagining the Indian movie about how dug in people can get with their tribes and their ideologies. Mm -hmm. 
to have someone coming from outside to think that I can talk to people and maybe persuade them is is amazing. It right is. Now. It and is. maybe it takes someone from the outside because we're so entrenched in this culture right now that it is hopeful, hopeful to see. And that is uh, The Ants and the Grasshopper. It's on VOD now. Check out Rachel Willis's review at madwolf.com. And hey, where's Judd Hirsch been? We haven't <laughs> we haven't seen him for about five minutes, so how about more Judd Hirsch? It's a comedy drama with a Holocaust survivor born and raised in a different time who must face the realities of the modern world. When confronted with an unfamiliar object, an iPhone, will Mordecai be able to fit into a world that has changed so much around him? We'll find out. It's I, Mordecai. I work on being a father to my son. What's with the ice cream? Makes you feel like a kid again. Don't make you feel young? <laughs> I can make me feel young. I'm not raised to be old man. But you are old to me. Hello! This is first iPhone call. It's nice to be young. It's nice to be old. Nice to have fun with no buttons. <laughs> it's nice to have family. Tori Haynes reviewed this one for us, and it's one of those movies where it's such a lovely idea, such a lovely concept that you wish you could say better things about it. It yeah. actually was written to homage the filmmaker's dad. Yeah, it says ba- the poster says based on a true story. Yeah, who you know just took on the iPhone, figured it out, and then but there's all <laughs> these a million other things also sure. at the same time, and it's got not only is is uh, Sean Astin is also in it. There's uh, you know Carol like, Kane got right. a bit of a taxi reunion here. Exactly, yeah. you know, and it's it's funny that to think that they got all of these people to make this sweet film, but it's just. Not very well told. The The performances are very superficial. The comedy is very broad. You always kind of know where things are going, except every so often a storyline is brought up and then just dropped out of nowhere. So she wanted to like it better, Tori. <laughs> and so yeah. she drew the short straw this week, unfortunately. It's a sweet idea, but it's just not a very good movie. Yeah, Tori's review is up now, madwolf.com. And I'm Mordecai is on VOD now. Let's see if we can pull the schlocketeer away from the new Metallica album and head to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Back in the lobby, who do we find? It's the schlocketeer, Daniel Baldwin, with the latest studio news and updates. What's shaking? Well, as of today, Cocaine Bear is available to stream on Peacock, so if you missed that in theaters, you can catch up with it now. Fun. And uh, Ben Affleck and Matt Damon's movie Air is hitting Amazon Prime on May 12th. So if you're unable to see that in theaters, mark your calendar. Those are both great movies. Yeah. I very much enjoyed both of those Both movies. of them, yes. I haven't seen either one yet, so really? I, I need to play catch-up. Yeah, Get on it. <laughs> yeah, they're both wildly different yeah. <laughs> movies. <laughs> I would imagine. But they're both good, yeah. Although they, uh, the the tracksuit shots of Ben Affleck uh, in the trailer <laughs> make me think that maybe he's not entirely uh, foreign to the notion of uh, cocaine or bears. You never know. Uh, Sony has set a July 7th release for Insidious, The Red Door. Um, I guess this fifth century is dropping the prequel angle that they had on the previous two, and instead it's going to function like an actual Insidious 3 that takes place about a decade after the events of the second one. 
So they do have uh, Patrick Wilson, Ty Simpkins, and Rose Byrne all back for it, and it is Patrick Wilson's directing debut. Ooh. Ooh. All right. Yeah. They gave him that prime summer slot, so he must have done a good job. <laughs> and the first John Wick spinoff is hitting in September. It'll be a trio of TV movies about young Winston in the late 70s, Ooh. and that'll be on Peacock. That should um, be fun. And Albert Hughes, the director of From Hell and Book of Eli, directed two of the three TV movies. Oh, so, okay. Little little pedigree there. Mm-hmm. And Disney has pushed back the release of Taika Waititi's soccer comedy, Next Goal Wins, from late September to a November 17th release date. And then we have some project announcements. Uh, filmmaking team Radio Silence is reuniting with their Scream 5 and 6 actress, Melissa Barrera, on a new Universal Monsters movie, so timely for this week. Um, it's rumored to be a loose update of Dracula's Daughter, but no official details just yet. Hmm. Given how they reimagined the other one so far, who knows how loose and how different that could be. Yeah. So I think what they're doing now is they chucked the whole dark universe notion, and instead they're just letting filmmakers pitch individually on their own ideas and not worrying about making a cinematic universe out okay. of it. All right, probably so, smart. Yeah. Yeah, a free-for-all is probably the better way to go. <laughs> free-for-all. <laughs> And the other big thing is Disney finally announced another round of Star Wars uh, movie projects, which, you know, we got five Star Wars movies in five years from 2015 to 2019, and we haven't had anything since then other than TV stuff from Disney+. Plus. Uh-huh. But they've announced three new films. Um, the first one is expected to arrive December 2025, and that will be a continuation on from the sequel trilogy, so it'll have Rey as the lead again. Uh, supposedly starting up a new Jedi Order. The second film will be a crossover event movie that's combining characters from a lot of their recent uh, TV shows that are set right after Return of the Jedi. Mm-hmm. So there'll probably be a mix of those, and I'm sure they'll have Luke and Leia and Han in there in some capacity. And then the third film is apparently set thousands of years before the prequels, about the dawn of the Jedi with James Mangold writing and directing. Ah, They do not have release windows for those second two films, but um, they're currently expected to hit like one in 2027 and one in 2029 because I think the plan is to juggle um, Avatar sequels and Star Wars movies beginning Uh uh, next year. Yeah. I was a little surprised to see Daisy Ridley back on board. I thought she was... Kind of vocal about being done with it, but maybe a big truckload of money helps that. I don't know. Money and probably having time off yeah. helped as well. Yeah, step yeah. away from it for a while, sure. Yeah. And that's all I've got for you this All week. right. Well, you can go back to the new Metallica album, crank it <laughs> up, will. and uh, we'll talk to you next week. All right. Next week, oh, we got a big one next week. How much are we looking forward to Evil Dead Rise? So much. So much. By the way, if you're a fan... Uh, of Evil Dead and Bruce Campbell. Check out our other podcast, our horror movie-only podcast called Fright Club. Latest edition has an interview with Bruce Campbell. He joined us on the show. What? Come on. So Evil, <laughs> and he talks about this, by the yeah, way. he does. Evil Dead Rise, that's out next week. Also, Bo is Afraid, another one we're very excited about. Yeah, very much so. To Catch a Killer, that's Shailene Woodley, that's <laughs> next week. Mm-hmm. Ghosted. Gringa. Little Richard. I am everything. I like the confidence. I believe it. And also one called Help Me. So that's all next week. But what about this week? You like the scary stuff, the bloody funny stuff. You got Renfield, Pope's Exorcist, all kinds of stuff. Some documentaries. Uh, Keep the conversation going. That's easy to do. You can find us uh, on Twitter at Mad Wolf. That's M-A-D-D-W-O-L-F. Also on Facebook and Instagram. It's Mad Wolf Columbus. And the main website, 
where you can find all of our written reviews and, yeah, our other horror movie-only podcast we were just talking about called Fright Club. That's all there for you on the website at madwolf.com. So uh, we hope you have a great week. We hope you enjoy the movies. Until next week, she is Hope Madden. He's George Wolf. And this is the Screening Room Podcast. See ya. I do wish we could chat longer, but I'm having an old friend for dinner. Bye. Okay, everybody, that's a wrap. <laughs> <laughs>